everyone. Welcome to another episode of Antidote Stories in Medicine. This is Christine. So this week, we are going to be talking about anecdotes themselves. So this entire podcast is about stories and the people that live them and what their stories are in medicine. Clearly, that is the title of the podcast. But in our efforts to tell really good stories and to share what it's like to do what we do in various careers in the field, we have all great intentions, but sometimes people are using anecdotes for maybe not the best reasons. And and I certainly, I did not even really think of it. I didn't realize, oh yeah, you know, other people that are not exactly the most evidence-based people are using anecdotes as well. So sometimes they're not always the best thing. So a couple weeks ago, I was interacting with some random people on social media, and I'll leave it there. I got a very interesting message about someone that says, hey, I actually wrote a book about anecdotes. And I will tell you one thing. When you are in podcasting, usually you mark your level of success by getting ads and followers, but being sent a draft of a textbook for free is probably one of my markers of success because that was very cool to get. So I am very excited to have on the author of that, Dr. Jonathan Howard, a neurologist and psychiatrist from NYU and Bellevue, who is the author of Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, a case-based guide to critical thinking in medicine. Welcome, Dr. Howard. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you wrote this whole book about biases and the errors that we're making in medicine, and one part in particular about anecdotes. Why did you want to write this book? Well, so I am, as you said, a neurologist and a psychiatrist, and I'm obviously interested in one thing and one thing only, the brain, and um, you know how people think. And what initially attracted me to the field of neurology um, and psychiatry was sort of thinking gone wrong. So in psychiatry, obviously, you have uh, these sort of fascinating uh, delusional disorders. At least I find them this Mm -hmm. this way where people just, you know, believe these, you know, know, unbelievable things. And then in neurology, you have, uh, you know, more focal deficits. Like if someone, you know, has a a stroke in their left temporal lobe, they can uh, speak, but their speech is nonsense and they can't understand. And so... So all these language disorders, all of these, um, you know, disorders of sort of bodily perception, you know, where people sometimes uh, with strokes on the right hemisphere, they're weak on the left side, obviously, but they'll even deny that their left arm is their own, um, all sorts of weird visual symptoms. So I'm very interested in, in how people think. And you know, with this book on cognitive biases, um, you know, it's interesting how sort of people with normal brains think, often very correctly, um, but, uh, you know, often very incorrectly. And, yeah. you know, and how this applies to what we do in medicine, how we get it right and how we get it wrong. So I was reading one chapter in particular because it is a textbook and it's quite long. And I was reading the one on anecdotes, but then I was like, well, this is really fascinating. I'm going to go back and read a bit more. And I was like, well, I'm going to just pick out some chapters that I find interesting. And then I was like, well, that's selection bias. And I'm going to get called out on that (laughs) if I do it. So (laughs) I'm going to start at the beginning. And I did, but I I was on call today and I got a couple of calls when I was doing it. So I did not get very far, but (laughs) that's okay. Listen, I think except for maybe the first and last one or two chapters. I, I just arranged it alphabetically. It's meant to be read in any order. So don't, <laughs> so by all means, select the, you know, and to me, some are more interesting than others too. So don't feel bad at all. But you brought up a really interesting point just in the introduction, as far as medical errors are made because of biases. And I, and I think that's really true. It, there's Medicine is so experiential for us as clinicians is what have we done in our careers and what cases have we seen? And then what kind of realm have we developed in? And then and that in itself, of itself is a bias. And you mentioned one part about how you are a neurologist and you specialize in MS. If you were to walk through an ED, you would notice right away the symptoms of someone with MS. And in my head, it just kind of reminded me of a case where I had a patient in the ambulance way back in the day. And you know, the patient was sweaty, they had all these little marks on their arms, and they were kind of tremulous, and they just looked pretty poorly. And I automatically had assumed that it was, you know, a drug user, probably an IV drug user with track marks. And turns out it was actually a a type one diabetic who was having a low when I checked their sugar. And it was, it was an automatic, you know, bias from what I had seen repeatedly just in that area. And then my clinical decision making changed as soon as I got that blood sugar. So, moments like that now have changed my biases to 
understand that there are biases <laughs> and that I need to reflect on them. So we are so prone, even though we try and look at evidence that in the moment, especially in emergency medicine, that we're going to be getting, you know, false information from our own brains, even though we don't mean to. Yeah. So, I mean, what you just discussed uh, was probably the availability bias, meaning, you know, what both of us might be guilty of that, that we tend to think about things that readily come to our mind. So if you're the last 10 patients you've picked up in that situation, you know, were drug overdoses, then it's not surprising that you would think that the 11th is the same thing. And, And let me just make one quick point about biases. I mean, it it tends to have sort of a negative connotation. Like if I say, hey, you're biased, I'm probably not paying you a compliment. But I'm not necessarily using the word sort of in that way. That is necessarily a negative thing. You know, this is how our brains work. And it might make actually quite a bit of sense that if you've picked up 10 people with a drug overdose that you assume the 11th one has and and you know maybe you don't you know sure you want to check a blood sugar it's a very easy simple test to sort of rule out you know but you don't want to necessarily go down the sort of massive road of thinking about all these sort of hyper obscure things um you know carbon monoxide poisoning i don't know right you know less common things as well so so uh, you know bias thinking and even in emergency medicine can can often sort of lead you in the right direction. That So I'm, I'm using the term uh, in, in a slightly different way. So biases in themselves aren't bad. It's just sort of patterns uh, of thought um, and the way our, our brains are sort of designed to think, which often give us the right answer. Otherwise, we you know, wouldn't be talking to each other right now through the internet, you know, this amazing uh, invention, yeah. um, you know, but don't always give us the right answer. Yeah. So same thing with anecdotes, where sometimes they can be very beneficial. And you were mentioning specifically case studies, where we can sit through hours and hours of lectures and be told all sorts of facts, especially when it comes to things like pharmacology and pathophys and on and on and on. But when someone goes to an M&M round and they present a case, you go, oh my gosh, I remember it so much more vividly. So that those anecdotes can be really beneficial. But and, and I'm hoping, although there's certainly a bias when I say this, that this podcast is providing anecdotes in a beneficial way. But what are some incidences that you have found where anecdotes are used kind of in a negative way? Well, I mean, when I think about anecdotes, what comes to mind for me is powerful. They have a very powerful hold on our mind. They're how we understand the world. You know, we start out as kids sort of hearing stories and, you know, loving them. And anecdotes in medicine are sort of story time for doctors, nurses, EMTs, pharmacists, you name it. Mm-hmm. And I have one chapter in the book devoted entirely to anecdotes, but every chapter starts out with an anecdote. It starts out with sort of a case gone wrong, um, you know, it sort of describes the case and then it has a section, you know, what the doctor was thinking, you know, or the sort of I'm a little bit biased towards doctors in the book, I guess, but, um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, but I mean, okay, I'm biased towards nurse practitioners, <laughs> you know, but, but it could be anyone, you know, that's, that's not the yeah. point, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, what, what this, you know, person was thinking and, and, and sort of how they went wrong, because I realized that, you know, these sort of stories get people's attention. So, yeah. um, you know, again, what, what I think about with anecdotes is power and it could be, you know, used for good and used for evil, sort of like fire, you know, we use fire to cook and to heat, you know, maybe not as much as our ancestors did, you know, but, you know, without fire, humanity never would have survived. Um, You know, but fire can awfully, you know, can also be completely destructive. So anecdotes are, are like fire to me. You mentioned specifically alternative, and you said CAM. So CAM is complementary and alternative medicine. And I think complementary is that stuff that is like you know, acupuncture that is supporting allopathic medicine, but the alternative stuff is the really not evidence-based because in in one of your quotes, it was like, well, as soon as something becomes evidence-based and mainstream, it's no longer alternative. So explain how the anecdotes are used for like anti-vaxxers. And you mentioned something really interesting with MS and someone was on a keto diet and kind of all this sham medicine that is getting people in the heart of emotion as opposed to something that's really science-based and going to be really helping them. Sure. So I want this to be a conversation, but based on that, I could probably talk for the next hour straight. So just, uh, just, <laughs> just, just cut me off. But yeah, so there's a there's sort of a famous quote. I think it was a, a comedian, Tim Minchin, who said this, but um, he said something along the lines of, do you know what they call alternative medicine that works? 
medicine. <laughs> so once something has been shown to work, it's sort of no longer alternative. And, uh, you know, let me say what I'm talking, you know, what I'm not talking about with alternative medicines are things like diet and exercise and, you know, things like that. The alternative medicine is sort of somehow we, you know, rebranded those things as, as alternative uh, when they're not. And so given that alternative medicine, by definition, can't have science to back it up. Right. All it has, all it can have are anecdotes. And these can be very, very persuasive. You know, it, it's extremely compelling to, to, to read a story of, you know, I had X and Y disease, I did X and Y treatment, and look at me now. And those anecdotes, you know, I, I'm careful in the book to, you know, to say that, they, you know, they shouldn't be sort of discarded um, automatically. You know, some anecdotes can be very true. And, you know, since you brought up vaccines, which I think uh, are, are probably the single greatest intervention in the history of medicine, um, mm -hmm. they were started by anecdotes, you know. So Edward right. Jenner, um, you know, heard sort of, you know, fairy tales from, from uh, you know, rural, rural farmers in England um, that milkmaids who got uh, infected with cowpox were immune to smallpox. And he decided to test it out. He actually, a little bit of trivia, I don't think it was actually the first person to do it. He was the first person to get credit. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, and lo and behold, you know, based on these anecdotes, uh, you know, vaccines were discovered. And we no longer have smallpox, polio, diphtheria, and, 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 and you know, many other diseases have, have largely vanished. And in more recent times, the HIV epidemic was sort of first discovered when I think it was five cases were reported by the CDC of this sort of rare uh, pneumonia. So, you know, anecdotes can be right for sure, um, but they can also be wrong. And this is uh, what I'll talk about with alternative medicine. Yeah, I thought those points were really interesting as far as they can be correct. However, you said something about it's the weakest form of medicine, but it should never be the end point. So if you're using them in a clinical setting, you know, then take that and then go further with it. But that's the thing with alternative medicine and vaccines and, you know, weird cabbage juices to cure everything that ails you is it kind of ends there. They don't then go and produce something else that is evidence-based and studied yeah. know, with a a blind study. Right. So alternate, you know, so anecdotes can be a good starting point to try to launch more formal scientific investigations. Um, but they are a horrible ending point for any uh, practitioner who sort of wants to try to make evidence-based decisions for their patients. And the center, um, the, the, the chapter um, on anecdotes really centers around uh, a doctor named Terry Walls, um, who I've never met. I have no relationship with her personally. Um, but, but she is a doctor who um, has uh, multiple sclerosis. Again, that's the main disease that I treat. And she claims to have not just halted MS in its tracks, um, but reversed the symptoms. Okay, so if you Google her name and go to sort of Google images, you will see before and after pictures of her. And in the before picture, um, she is sitting uh, in a wheelchair uh, in, in the hospital, you know, sort of fluorescent lighting, and she's kind of got gray hair and a frown on her face. And then in the after picture, uh, supposedly taken a year later, she is outside smiling on a bicycle. Okay. So miraculous. <laughs> it's miraculous. So, you know, so listen, I, I, I don't, I, again, I don't know her. I, I don't think that she's a liar. I don't think that she's sort of fabricating this, but it's a very extraordinary claim. Like if I was to, uh, you know, if we were to meet in person and I was to show up uh, as, as I have, you know, two arms and I was to say, listen, um, I, I was an amputee. Um, but believe it or not, I grew back my right arm, you know, with, with diet. And that's really what she claims is that she used a, a paleo diet and supplementation, um, which she calls the Walls Protocol, to reverse her MS. Now, if this is true, uh, this is one of the most significant discoveries in the history of medicine. And, and, and I don't think I'm exaggerating that. I mean, yeah, you know, how many doctors can you name throughout history? Again, I brought up Edward Jenner, maybe Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine, Sigmund yeah. Freud, Louis Pasteur. I mean, these sort of giants of medicine. I, I really think that she would join their ranks. 
And okay, so, you know, skeptical person like myself sort of wants to do a few things. You know, I want to be open-minded, right? I mean, the history of medicine is full of people who are called quacks and laughed at, but they turned out to be right. Yeah, It's sure. much, 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 much fuller of people who are called quacks and laughed at. And uh, we know, you know, that, and they were quacks. Uh, right. You know, we know, you know that we no longer remember their names. So they're sort of forgotten to history. Um, you know, but I would want to see, you know, really what evidence does she have? And, you know, she's collected this group of stories, which she calls Walls Warriors. And, you know, she publishes their anecdotes and their stories. You know, I did your diet and, you know, I feel a million times better. And it's great. You know, listen, I mean, I, I hope that these are true and I'm happy people are, are, are feeling better. But that's just not how medicine should work. I think I'm trying to frame my thought here. I mean, there's so many thoughts on this. <laughs> just, right. So I mean, I can go, I can go on. Then, well, go ahead. You got your thought. Ask your question. So, I mean, there's <laughs> so many things that just about like one MS is, and I have a very limited understanding of MS, but MS can be a relapsing and remitting condition. So people may, you know, have flares, and this is my understanding of it, that right. can also get a little bit better. So it may just be completely not related to her diet. Also, maybe it's just a healthier diet is, is good overall too. So how can she be controlling for that? But it's just that anyone that has been to any kind of formal education or any kind of scientific education knows that, all right, what is your like what is your n number for your study and if it's all stories, then your n is very low. So n is your like your number of participants in it. And when you're looking at all this kind of stuff, it's just, you're right, it's very emotional because, wow, they're cured. And if you're a patient that's looking at it, you're like, I want to be that one person. Maybe I can be that outlier. And the science doesn't really matter to them. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you brought up the, the, the question of N, I mean, but that's for science. And, you know, so far, yeah, you know, all we've talked about is sort of her story. She has done a handful of scientific studies. These are very, very, very small studies of, you know, around 15, 20 patients. The results are very modest. Um, you know, at best, some patients reported feeling a little bit uh, less fatigue, and, and maybe they improved on one study of, of, of hand movement. She does something that I think is, is a little bit dishonest in her studies. So what she'll do is she'll recruit maybe, you know, 40 people to sort of do her diet which is very restrictive and very difficult to do. And at the end of the three-month study period, you know, half of the people have dropped out, okay? Mm. They, they, they weren't able to do her diet for whatever reason. A proper analysis would include all 40 people who entered the study. Right. She, the people who drop out, she sort of, you know, throws them in the garbage can and doesn't analyze their data. The formal term for this, if anyone is wondering at home, is called the intention to treat analysis. And it, when I first learned about this, I was, I was a little confused, but um, I think it could be understood this way. You know, let's say I started, uh, you know, not the Wallace Protocol, but the Howard Protocol to sort of, you know, you know, lose weight. And I said, you know, my treatment is you have to jog 10 miles a day. Okay, you know, let's say I enroll 10,000 people in that study. And obviously, jogging 10 miles a day is extremely difficult. Right. And at the end of six months, only 10 participants were left. And all 10 of them lost weight. Can I then say, you know, you know I have a 100% success rate, all 10 people who did my jogging protocol lost weight? I guess you kind of could, but what about the other 9,990 um, who couldn't sustain it? Right. You know, you can't just sort of pretend that those people don't exist. So right. her, her formal studies, small as they are, really don't back up her claims. I mean, if, if you're reading any kind of study and you're reading any kind of peer-reviewed journal article, it will say there was an attrition rate and this is why. And it will list like, you know, the jogging thing. Three people got hit by a bus. So, okay, obviously they couldn't complete the study. That should not be included in the results because that had nothing to do with the study. But okay, everyone else just didn't want to do it. Well, that's actually part of the study. And so good scientific studies will describe that for you. But that's not her methods, and that's not the scientific method. Well, I tell you, if they got hit by the bus while jogging, that would be a true harm of the study, right? So, so be, that would be a true harm of the study. Would, it would yes, be very yes, important yes. to, to, to <laughs> include those people. And, you know, so you might ask, you know, what what is you know her motivation, right? So, I mean, yeah, you, you know, is she just sort of you know selling this out of you know what's up with this? And you know, again, I, I don't know her personally, and and, and I'll you know want to sort of assume you know as I'd like to that you know she's a good person, and most people are good people. 
people. <laughs> but if you go to her website, and this is very characteristic of uh, you know alternative medicine practitioners, it's it's a store. You know, she is selling all sorts of things. She is selling her book. Um, I guess I mm. am too. So a little bit of hypocrisy there, but uh, she's selling. <laughs> no, but you know, she trust me. I I guarantee I will lose money on my book. Um, you know, but she is selling as I am losing money on my podcast. Yeah, I know. We do this for the love. <laughs> you know, I, I hired a proofreader for like a thousand dollars. You know, for my book, I, I, there's no way I'm going to make that up, which is fine. You know, but she is selling. Uh, you know, her book. She's selling this sort of seminar and, and retreat. I'm looking at her website right now. You know, where, where sort of all these lecturers come and. Um, uh, this health uh, professional certification, which you can get for $2,499. She is selling uh, menus and, you know, an e-course, um, a membership uh, to her website. Uh, and this is just not sort of how reputable science is done. And, you know, again, this shows the sort of power of anecdotes, though, you know, people sign up for this. And, you know, I've had patients, you know, do her diet. And um, I saw a woman the other day who um, I'd met about a year ago. And, you know, she said, I, had, you know, I want to do the walls protocol. And I, you know, I said, fine. And she disappeared for a year. And she came back um, with a relapse in her brain stem. And I uh, was just too dizzy to even stand. The room was spinning, tons of vertigo, nausea and vomiting. Trust me, that anecdote. And that's what that is. You know, I realize what I'm right. saying is an anecdote too, but it won't appear on her website. So Right. My anecdotes are as good as her anecdotes. Yeah. And that's, I think, what at least what I try to do on this podcast, too, is share anecdotes of this is something that's out there and then go learn a little bit more about it. Because I think anecdotes help expose people to things and in a world that they may not have noticed before or allow people to feel more inclusive in a world that they may feel isolated in. So like with you know, EMTs and paramedics that are like, wow, I had these really traumatic experiences. Oh, here's an anecdote about someone else that had something similar. This is normal to feel this way. Maybe I should go get some help. And and that's a, granted a bias in my own to say that I hope, will hope that it is beneficial. So when everyone is listening to stories, when they're listening to my stories, when they're listening to Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and all these people with credentials that are telling them you should try these crazy diets and these pills and stuff. How do you suggest that people differentiate between the well-intentioned versus the well-marketed ploy? Yeah, I mean, you know, ask, ask to see the science. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people like Terry Walls were sort of, she'll do something, with, uh, use a technique called special pleading, which is essentially to say, I, I'm immune from the need for science. So she will say things like, you know, my treatment is sort of, uh, you know, it's, a, it's this complex diet. And with a medication, you can sort of do a randomized double blind trial, you can have half of the people take the real medicine, half the people take placebo. And, you know, but you can't do that with a diet, you can't sort of, you know, have half of the people, you know, not know what they eat, for example, you know, or she will say, doing trials costs millions of dollars, and there's just no one to sort of finance these studies. And she's right. Um, you know, there's not a lot of money to be made, you know, some pharmaceutical company isn't going to invest $20 million to do a study of diet. And you can't blind people to what they eat, you can't put a blindfold and, you know, not have people know whether they're eating a hamburger or a salad. So she's right about that. But you can't work backwards from that and then say her protocol works, right? So it's hard to study, you know, true. But that doesn't mean that it works. So you should ask whenever you hear an antidote, say, you know, what, what science is this based on? Um, and if they can't provide it, it's not on you to prove them wrong. It's on them to prove themselves right. Just as far as like evidence-based diets, and I have not read any literature on this, but I've heard that there are studies supporting like the keto diet for seizures in children. And there are studies that have, I think they're more like retroactive studies that have shown it. So is that correct? I mean, there's things that have shown that diets can be successful for certain things. So in that kind of like logical fallacy part, like... As far as I know, for the keto diet in particular... Um, I think it's just for kids in like... I think you're right. So I'm saying like diets have been studied 
to be successful for certain inter- as an intervention. So her, her entire idea that you can't study diets is just is a fallacy. Right. And, and, and listen, I don't want, uh, you know, sort of anyone uh, listening to this to sort of think, oh, you know, here's sort of a typical doctor, you know, not, you know, saying diet doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Oh, no, of course not. You know, I wrote a, a hundred page guide that I emailed to all my patients with MS. And I, in it, I say, you know, here are the five or six things to lead a, you know, long life. Number one, eat a healthy diet. Two, exercise. Three, don't smoke. Three, don't drink too much. Four, get enough sleep. Uh, and what are I up to now? I'm lost count. But, you know, and the last one is sort of, be, <laughs> you know, be social. Uh, don't yeah. isolate yourself. So, you, you know, these things are extremely important. And I do stress them with my patients. But, uh, you know, they don't reverse MS any more, more than if someone told me, um, you know, I could, uh, you know, regrow my hair and balding a little bit and, uh, you know, stop my beard from turning white. You know, if I sort of only ate properly, and that's just, that's just kind of kind of uh, kind of an obvious myth. And that's why I was hesitant to say complementary was included in this because I think diet is a great complementary thing to allopathic medicine. Of course, if I'm treating your cholesterol or diabetes or just your life in general, diet and exercise are extremely important. And if you want to focus on that, any kind of lifestyle change, if you want to focus on that is a very important part for you to be doing while I am focusing on the prescribing and medication management part. Great. We are a great team together, but that's, you know, that's not the only solution to this problem. I mean, I, I, I would I would object to what you just said a little bit in that I would say it's not complementary at all. And this is where I was talking a little bit about the rebranding that, yeah, if you're treating dyslipidemia and diabetes, diet and exercise are, are treatments number one and two, you know, depends on what sort of diabetes, and uh, of course, but, you know, and I, you have to recognize that not two things, a few things, you know, not everyone can do that. You know, some people work 16 hour days and they, they, they can't go to the gym for an hour every day. And some people try that and it, it just doesn't work for them and medications are necessary. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think this is where I was talking about the rebranding. Again, that, that diet and exercise are not complementary. They are, you know, the most important treatments for, for many, many conditions, but not all. Um, you know, you can't oh, yeah. exercise your way out of, <laughs> you know, pancreatic cancer, for example, unfortunately. Sure. And I think I probably gave some pretty poor examples of things that require lifestyle interventions first. That's all right. Uh, I know you I know what you, you know what you're talking about. It's fine. But I mean you're very right. Certain things should start with diet and exercise interventions, but other things they work hand in hand together with medication when it's appropriate for your specific treatment plan. But I think when she also says on her website, like, oh, I can treat any autoimmune disorder. Yes. <laughs> you know, any diet is not going to treat any disease and any treatment for anything. Whenever someone says anything so broadly, I mean, that should just be like red flags times a thousand. Like what? Like that's not how anything works. I mean, Lipitor doesn't work for everyone that has high cholesterol, much less your weird diet doesn't work for everyone that has every inflammatory disease, autoimmune disease. That's just not how medicine works. Correct. And, you know, she is following in sort of a long tradition, you know, so. Yeah. And I'm just generalizing her as an example of the kind of mindset of that whole community as well. And uh, again, I don't know her either. Right. But, um, you know, there's a, you know, a decade ago, we would have been talking about sort of a different MS cure. About a decade ago, there was a doctor who actually did much more science um, by the name of Paolo Zamboni, who was a vascular surgeon, who claimed that the cure for the, the cause of MS was sort of venous blockage in the brain. And the cure is to sort of open up veins, okay, so to stent them. And he actually, as I said, did a little bit more science than Terry Walls. And lo and behold, you know, this sort of swept uh, the MS community. Millions of dollars, many millions of dollars were uh, devoted to sort of more formally studying it. And, and unfortunately, it didn't work. But someone did an analysis of all the YouTube videos of people who had gotten this procedure done, and there were like 750, and 725 of them were very, very positive. And I read an article at the time, I, I forget who it was by, but he said, you know, I've been studying MS since 1975, and every five years, uh, the cure for MS is announced. And in 1975, it was uh, bee stings, in 1980, it was hyperbaric oxygen, in 1985, it was cobra venom, you know, so he just went through these things. And, you know, all of these are supported by anecdotes and testimonials. And, you know, that that's their danger. 
do you think it goes against medical ethics to be to be touting these kind of cures? I mean, I imagine these physicians are true believers of their own cures, but at the same time, you know, it's this do no harm Hippocratic oath that physicians take, and they are doing harm by suggesting their diet interventions as opposed to taking the medications that are prescribed for these diseases. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I I think that it is unethical to promote cures that are not evidence-based. I think it's unethical to sell things directly to patients to profit that way. You know, again, I I, I did write a book for MS patients. It costs $15. I get $1 per copy sold. I email it free to my patients. You know, I'd be utterly shocked if I, you know, get more than $100 in royalties per year from this book. But yes, ethical doctors don't sell menus. Ethical doctors don't sell, you know, memberships to their website. And it's not surprising that Terry Walls, she probably wouldn't describe herself this way, but is anti-vaccine. You know, she does sort of a lot of vaccine fear-mongering. And these things sort of often go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, sort of the more a doctor sells, you know, more likely they are into other quackery. And she, you know, she might point out in in fairness that people in my position also have conflicts of interest. We might be getting a little bit off topic here, but, you know, there's huge money in in these MS medications. They, um, you know, cost many tens of thousands of dollars a year. And some of my friends, um, you know, do get paid thousands of dollars uh, per year, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak on behalf of these pharmaceuticals companies. That's all publicly available. Their website's called Dollars for Docs, where you can sort of look people up. And, um, you know, I th- also think that's unethical. But but pointing out that, and this is a favorite technique of, of some of these alternative medicine practitioners, is, is, you know, they'll point out something unethical pharmaceutical companies did, and they'll be, or do, and they'll, they'll be absolutely right about that. But that also doesn't mean their treatment works. Right. It's kind of a diversion tactic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You know, sure, you know, I punched you in the face, but, you know, someone punched me two weeks ago, you know, it, 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 right. it doesn't make it right. And, you know, when, when I say that, you know, Terry Walls and, and, and her ilk are sort of following this, this long, you know, line of, uh, of you know, using anecdotes to, to, to sell things, um, I, I found this amazing book. It's online. I think it's from 1912 or 1911 or something like that. It's called um, Nostrums and Quackery. Maybe uh, I'll email it to you and you can sort of link to it in in, in the show uh, notes or something like that. But it is this massive tome of of 509 pages all about sort of, you know, quack cures from 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. I can only imagine what things that they thought was quackery when it was all cocaine and (laughs) (laughs) you know a a, a few things i mean a lot of it wasn't that different yeah you you know sort of various vegetable juices and you know electrical devices you know various vibrating belts and and all of these still exist today and what's interesting is you see these ads like i'm I'm just looking at this now and and you think to yourself this is ridiculous now who would fall for sort of doc johnson's miracle cure-all you know, read about how this cured my dropsy, my, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, here, this Adkin vitopathic treatment cured patients. I'm looking at this ad, you know, the sworn evidence, read the sworn proof, every testimonial, a sworn statement. Um, Can you ask for anything more convincing? You know, what we have done for others, we can do for you. Uh, Female weakness cured, cured of facial paralysis, locomotor ataxia cured, Paralysis, conquered at last, nervous breakdown cured, um, whatever locomotor taxi is, I don't know, but there's a sworn, <laughs> there's a sworn statement. You know, and I, you know, so we laugh at that, right? I mean, you know, we recognize this instantly in this sort of old print and this old style of handwriting with these old names for our old font, whatever typeset, and these old names for these diseases that, that uh, you know, have been renamed. We, we recognize this instantly as quackery. But when we go to some of these websites and we see, you know, someone, you know, a smiling person and, and, and these the sort of testimonials of smiling people on, on websites, our, our modern brains are, are, are tricked by that. And well, now I think the terms are more like all natural and plant-derived and, you know, completely organic and oh, works with your body and, and all these sorts of things. And working in primary care now, you get so 
in tune with the latest quackery because patients come in like, well, I read this article about this thing and now I need to be worried about it. What do you think of this? And you're like, I have not even heard of this. This sounds like the most ridiculous thing. Why are you putting poison ivy extract under your tongue? (laughs) And now you're having an allergic reaction. Now you're upset about it. And I have to go Google this while they're sitting in front of me. And it seems ridiculous to you, but then you're like, oh my God, the New York Times just told me that I should stop all of my psychotropic medication because it's harming me and my like neurotransmitters. And like those are articles that are out. And now you have to be aware of these things in the modern tense as a clinician. It's just, it's actually overwhelming. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is where you can sort of harness the power of anecdotes in, in, in a good way. Yeah. And, and that's to sort of say, you know, the next patient of mine, you know, who comes in and, you know, sort of wants to try one of these cures, I sort of have an army of, you know, not army, but, you know, a, um, a collection of patients in mind, you know, who have tried these things to their detriment. So I'm not going to be dishonest with patients. I'm going to try to use anecdotes to steer them in the right direction by saying, hey, listen, you know, I I saw someone, you know, last week who tried this. And, you know, unfortunately, she came back, um, you know, with multiple new lesions or with a severe relapse and is doing much worse. You know, ideally, I'd like to say to patients and do as well and sort of say, you know, here's this more formal science backing up what, what I showed you. Sure. You know, but I recognize that they're more likely to be uh, persuaded by anecdotes. So anecdotes backed up by good science, uh, I think, are, are not only ethical, but often mandatory. So that was going to be my next question is, you know, talking about the ethics of using this anecdotal evidence when it's not evidence-based by people that are kind of hawking their wares in this quackery. Is it ethical for us as clinicians to be using anecdotal evidence in kind of combating that to say like, okay, you don't believe in vaccines. Well, I've seen someone with measles and this is, or mumps and like, let me tell you about orchitis if you don't get <laughs> maybe it. You should, maybe you should define orchitis. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it's worse than it sounds. I've never had it, thank God, and you never yes, will, but yes, go ahead. Thank you. But it is a uh, quite a lovely, we'll just say infection of the testicles that is just, it leads to some infertility and it's not so good if you get it. You know, the swelling of the cheeks, that happens down there. Not good and pretty painful in a very, very simplistic explanation for a podcast, but using these stories against them. Yeah, so is I think, that you know, an, an ethical use of anecdotes? I think absolutely. So, um, and I th- again, I think it's mandatory. So, I think the anti vaccine movement has been so successful, although they're you know partially successful. Um, let's not overstate uh, their power, but you know, by sharing these these tragic anecdotes of a child who gets a vaccine at some point later, uh, you know, a, a day, a week, yeah, you know, a month, something tragic happens to that child, and the parents, you know share their story on social media, just convinced that the vaccine caused it. And, you know, that's extremely, extremely compelling. And just last week, there was a massive study uh, from Denmark showing again that the MMR vaccine does not cause autism. Yeah. I think that study will convince exactly no one. It will change no one's mind. Yes. But in contrast, sharing a case of, you know, okay, you know, I just saw an unvaccinated child who came down with a horrible case of the chicken pox and, you know, they had to be hospitalized not that that happens too too con- it's not something that happens too often but is much more persuasive than you know showing them that study or the case that was just in the news last week about the child the first case that came down with tetanus in oregon yep we're thinking yeah, the exact same thing in <laughs> oregon the story go ahead <laughs> yeah i actually i only saw the headline and i was so disgusted that i you know, didn't even read it because, you know, it was going to be the same old, same old of just why would you ever want to get tetanus? So I'll tell you, because I did read the articles, but it's interesting. Our brains went, you know, but this shows the power of anecdotes right now. Our brains went to the exact same place, right? The story, the story that made the news. It was an unvaccinated child in Oregon who got tetanus, as you said, and he spent a month in the hospital, was extremely sick, his care cost $800,000, and he needed the care uh, over the course of that month of 100 different doctors and nurses. And his parents still refused to vaccinate him against tetanus and against other diseases. Uh. And so, yeah, I mean, showing parents, you know, this is unlikely to happen, but this is the sort of potential consequence. You know, that story, which is making the rounds on pro-science pages of social media, will have 
infinitely more influence uh, than this massive study out of Denmark showing uh, vaccines are safe. It, it shouldn't, um, but right. it will. It's uh, two thoughts here. One is Denmark produces these really amazing longitudinal studies just because they have this national health system. They can study people for so long. And they recently also released a study about like infections and mental health um, that was very interesting, but that's not what this episode is about. I didn't know that about Denmark at all. I, I, I never really thought about it, but go ahead. Because it's a national health system and they're just very good at record keeping. They have some really good studies with like huge numbers of people. Um, And now I don't know where I'm going with my second thought. Oh, in our episode last week, I was talking with a school nurse about vaccines. And she was saying, you know, when they're dealing with anti-vaxxer parents or families in, she's on the West Coast, and they have this issue. It's, you know, she says, it's not really a matter of science, it's a matter of heart. And that's basically what anecdotes are about. And so when they are talking with families about how do you get your child vaccinated and how do you get them treated in the best way when there's a measles outbreak in their district, you know, they have to talk to them not about the facts of the measles vaccine because that's not going to help them. That's They're not going to listen to that. They have to talk to them about how to do it in kind of their quote unquote holistic way to supplement the care that they want to give their child. And I think we have to learn to speak their language a little bit with anecdotes because obviously throwing science at people, the thing that convinced us is not really going to convince people if they're so, you know, against it and just so beholden to this this movement of it's going to cause harm. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that's true about, you know, the anti-vaccine movement are, are really, um, you, know, you know, many people who sort of believe uh, false things. I'm sure I, I have some false beliefs. I just don't know what they are. But it's, it's just not... A de- I just don't want to believe them. <laughs> it's not a deficit of facts. Okay, so let's say, for example, I was to, you know, get in a discussion, you know, with, with a leading anti-vaccine advocate. You know, that person... Um, you know, probably knows a lot about vaccines and, and, and a lot about the study. So it's not just, you know, factual information. For example, I'm sure if I got into a debate with someone, you know, who thought the moon landing was a hoax or the Loch Ness monster was real, you know, the world's experts in these things, um, I'd look like a fool because they probably know a hell of a lot more facts about these things than I do. So it's it's, it's not just a pure facts. And I think what, what, we have, you know, science uh, communicators have, have yet to discover is, you know, how to, and maybe there isn't a way, but, you know, how to, you know, undo the, the harm of these very, very emotionally uh, compelling narratives, which I should add, um, should be taken with, with a grain of salt. I actually wrote a book chapter uh, in a book called Pseudoscience on the Anti-Vaccine Movement. And, and one of the cases uh or one of the 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 sections on it um there was a there's a website called vac truth and anytime a website has the word truth in it just you know Mm. it's full of lies but um they they, they shared (laughs) a story um of this boy named daniel uh i might have some details wrong but but he he died uh, tragically at about one years old you know shortly you know a couple weeks after getting some vaccines and um you know they, they shared his story and his mother was sort of a a prominent uh, anti-vaccine person until they started manipulating uh, her story and, you know, things started to change. If I recall, you know, first he got the vaccine and then he died two months later and suddenly it was two weeks later. Suddenly he died two hours later and they just started playing, you know, hard and loose with the facts to where she sort of realized what was happening and got so disgusted. I, I quote her in this book chapter saying, you know, they, you know, we, they changed his name by the end, and, and, and this sort of thing. And so, you know, th- these stories, you, you also have to definitely take them with it with rain of salt. And that's one area where sort of, you know, pro science people are a little bit disadvantaged. Is hopefully, you know, we just don't lie. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, how to convince people just not to believe everything they read is is extremely difficult. I think that's a big problem with our country overall right now, not just in our little microcosm of medicine. But it's also, 
it's it's interesting. It, it's not just sort of a, a you know we're talking about people that they're very gullible, like oh they believe everything they read on the internet. But it, but in reality, some of these sort of conspiracy theorists and anti-vaccine people are sort of pathologically doubtful. So you know you know there's a massive study funded by the CDC. Oh well, you know the CDC is corrupt. Okay, there's a massive study funded by a pharmaceutical industry. Oh well, of course they're corrupt. Okay, there's a massive study founded by a university. Okay, but the university, you know, received a donation from Merck. Therefore, they're corrupt. And, you know, no one can be trusted. So it actually, I think, you know, people who buy into these things, uh, they're not just gullible, but they're sort of hyper skeptical to where they doubt everything. And, and, and again, this is what, to circle back to uh, Terry Walls, our, our, you know, the woman who uh, cured MS, you know, she sort of plays into this by saying, you know, pharmaceutical companies won't fund me because, you know, they'd be out of business. And so right. she, she, she plays into this sort of hyper skepticism that is, uh, you know, prominent as well to where, where you know, every shooting uh, in, you know, mass shooting is a false flag operation in some people's eyes. Uh, you know, it's, it's horrible and tragic. Is there anything else you want to say about anecdotes before we wrap up we're almost at an hour other than to say i, I think that doing a, a podcast on them is, is amazing because um you know conventional medicine i think underestimates their power um you know anecdotal medicine is sort of set as a slur <laughs> and you know and people are sort of completely blind to you know the power that anecdotes play in medicine you know we just to say what you said at the beginning you know there'll be a case conference where you know uh, you know, someone will be presenting a study in this study of 20,000 patients who blah, 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 and everyone will not off to sleep. And, you know, then the speaker will say, and I had a patient who took this medication and all of a sudden everyone will wake up, and right. pay attention. And so I think drawing attention to sort of how important and, and how powerful anecdotes are uh, in, in all of our lives is an extremely valuable service. And I you know, commend you for doing it. Uh, you you mentioned a great quote in your book that said, you know, a million deaths is a statistic, but one is a murder. And that really speaks to the emotion and the way that we frame stories versus large numbers of things. And again, I, I firmly believe that if you're going to be doing anything, that you should also look at the potential negative side effects of it or the, you know, look at it a little bit critically. So, uh, whenever I think that quote was by Joseph Stalin, by the way, was that a quote by Joseph Stalin? Oh my gosh! Uh, well, I think it's a little bit unclear about who's first said it, but it's mostly attributed to him. You know, the death of a million people is a statistic; the death of one man is a tragedy. <laughs> but he was right. He was right about but, that. But uh, you know, I mean, just because he's not the most you know favorable character doesn't mean he can't be right in some of his insights on things. But probably he had some insights that made him successful in what he was doing. <laughs> And that brings me to the point of if you're going to be doing something, you should be critical in your reflection on it. And that is the same thing with this podcast as far as we are telling stories. And, you know, what is the point of telling stories? Well, my intention is to tell them so that people can learn more and then hopefully, you know, use that as a jumping off point. You know, I always say that, you know, when we tell something, it's it's not a globalization. It's not a generalization that, you know, oh, this is the medical advice. This is just someone's experience and maybe someone else is sharing something similar. Or maybe this is, you know, your way of saying, hey, there's this role that I didn't know existed, especially for people that don't work in medicine, to get a little bit of a glimpse into what we're doing that is so complex and so nuanced. I had someone that was a speech language pathologist on, and I think many people that are not in this realm of what we do don't even know that that would exist except by a story. So I think that has benefit to it. But again, whenever you're doing something, looking at it with a critical eye and just taking a step back, it's so, so important. So I really do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing that perspective. Do you yeah. want to talk about your book a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I'll just give one sort of parting thought and, yeah. and then I'll, uh, then I'll show myself, um, you know, that, that my career was launched by a storyteller. I went into neurologies. I think many people did because of the works of a man named Oliver Sacks, I was, who was a neurologist. I was actually yeah. looking up the man who mistook his wife for a hat today for something completely different, but yes, I, yeah, so that, that book is, I love is, that book. It's on my bookshelf right now. Yes. It, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing, you know, who knows what I'd be doing if it wasn't for that book. Maybe I would have been a professional baseball player after all, but, <laughs> but you, 
you know, um, you know, uh, for people who haven't read it, kind of like the title suggests, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. It's just a sort of a collection of of case studies and and, and case series, uh, are, are you know these individual stories about these patients with these fascinating brain disorders, and they're nothing but stories, but they're they're true and they're they're amazing, and they they started my my lifelong fascination with the brain and neurology um yeah so now for the shelling i mean i don't think i have too much more to say about the book other than to say i worked hard on it i hope you like it it's uh you know written um it's a medical book and it's you know you called it a textbook but it's 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 really a book on critical thinking more than medicine so i think people who aren't doctors are into medicine at all could enjoy it it's um you know full of sort of pictures and memes yes um so it's meant to be sort of fun and and, and entertaining i talk about myself you know terry walls for example has walls warriors i have howard's heroes um you know so it's it's it was not meant to be sort of this sort of dry you know uh, stayed textbook and it's a a little bit expensive on amazon i think it's a little bit cheaper if you go to the publisher springer.com uh you know buy it from there so yeah thanks thanks for uh, letting me do that (laughs) yeah it was actually a much lighter read than you would expect from someone that is a neurologist and psychiatrist. <laughs> it was very, it was very interesting. There was a lot of memes. Uh, Stephen Colbert was quoted, and there was some oh, yeah. great eye rolling memes, and it was very fascinating in the way that I had found things like the man who mistook his wife for a hat and some other kind of neurology books. When so my my first degree was in biology with a concentration in um, neurobiology before I went to be an NP. So it was, I was like, oh, this is really great. All this stuff on biases and especially the case study. So I think anyone that is either in the field of medicine or also just kind of interested in the way that we are thinking would really like it. And it's called Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, a Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. And so if you guys want to get in touch with me, you can always follow me on social media. So Twitter is Antidotes Pod. The Facebook group is Antidotes Stories in Medicine Podcast. And Instagram is Antidotes Podcast. You can always send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. And thank you, as always, to Peter Hopkins for our, our amazing custom music. He's created some more stuff for us, so I'm so grateful for him. And just keep reaching out to me. Keep sharing. I love all the comments. I love all the emails that I get. I'm really so appreciative, especially all the reviews. So I hope you enjoy this edition of Antidotes, and I will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.